Welcome. This is episode 29. My name is Kareem Kanji. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, on this 29th episode, we speak with uh, Liam Vu, who is a uh, Toronto-based journalist, TV personality, uh, who it can be seen on global TV's The Morning Show, uh, as well as uh, his regular contributions uh, for ET Canada Live. We speak with this former uh, Scarborough resident about uh, uh, his life uh, growing up in Scarborough, uh, going to Ryerson, uh, University of Toronto, uh, and his career uh, starting off at MTV Canada uh, all the way up to uh, his work uh, today. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. If anyone's like, I love waking up at 4.30 a.m., like, that's not true. <laughs> you, no one likes to wake up that early. No. I mean, it, 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 it's worth it when you kind of do the show with, like, an awesome team, and then you have people coming up saying, like, hey, you know, I spend the morning watching you guys. Then that's then you're like, okay, that's that's totally worth it, because sometimes it feels like, who's watching? Is there? anybody it's up so this early? early. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes I guess that helps with the whole... Uh, the whole vibe, you, you know, the sort of laid back vibe of the morning show, like of morning TV. Yeah. It's probably because we don't have a studio audience. So sometimes it just ends up being very familial, you know, with each other. Have and you, you guys kind of tried forget. doing a studio audience? Uh, well, we've done some stuff similar to a studio audience. We're in the courtyard. Like we've had performances in the courtyard and in interviews courtyard. in the courtyard at um, 121 Bloors. So it's right across from Longo. Yes. It's like the church courtyard. So yeah, we set yeah, up yeah, like yeah. speakers and chairs. And then for like bigger acts, like we've had sort of fans come out and ask questions and and it's fun when we do that because it's completely different from being in an isolated so studio you right? you guys film it at the downtown studio yes yeah okay yeah all right yeah they built that studio specifically for us when we launched um almost five years ago now when you say we which are you talking about uh, specific glo show? global like global the morning show oh, okay okay yeah, 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 yeah. yeah oh that was built specific for them yeah for you guys okay yeah, yeah. otherwise the other studios up in uh, barbara green up yeah, in yeah. Don Mills. that's my hood Oh, you live up there? Yeah, Scarborough. Nice. We're Scarborough oh. brothers. Oh, Scarborough, nice. Yeah. So what part of Scarborough? Um, I grew up at Finch and Warden. Finch and Warden, okay. So I went to Sir Johnny McDonald. Nice. Uh, and now I live, and, and then got married, moved up to Thornhill, then moved back into the area. Yeah. So now I'm at uh, Pharmacy. Okay. Uh, and York Mills. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty close to the studio, yeah. I, yeah. I grew up in, like, it was almost like on the cusp of Scarborough, like the end of Lawrence Avenue East. Yeah, like you, Rouge Port Hill. Union or Port something? Port Union, yeah. yeah. Like, basically the end of the line when it comes to Scarborough. And then it becomes, like, Pickering and, and Ajax. And yeah. Murphy. So were you on the south side? Uh, like, the south yeah, by, yeah, by the water. That must have been nice. Uh, it wasn't nice back then. It was. <laughs> it wasn't nice back then. Because there's some nice areas now. It, like, our area, like, where there's, you, you, you know, cute townhouses and stuff now, it used to be, like, a former power plant. I still remember being a kid as they were, like, tearing it down yeah. and all that stuff. I think, like, an asbestos factory was nearby. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So then they tore that down, like, like way before I started school. But, 
like all that development around there, the waterfront, which is now like gorgeous. It wasn't that nice when that's where the go. Up. There's a go, the go station. Train. Yeah, I love by. that area. Oh, it's gorgeous now, but back yeah. then in high school, it's like <laughs> you went down there. It was just like shady lane. It wasn't that nice back. No, it was just like debris and oh wow, sometimes garbage. Because that's a really nice area now. It is nice now. It's <laughs> they've done an amazing job, but yeah. No, not like that when I grew up. And are your parents still around that area? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they still live in the exact same home. No way. In Scarborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm only back there, like, I see them on, on the regular because they come downtown a lot. Okay. Now that they're retired, you know, sometimes they go out dancing and stuff. Oh, so. nice. So, you know, mom's still being mom and she'll, like, drop off food. I'm like, mom, I don't need food. <laughs> and then she'll drop off food. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> and um, and then we head back for Christmas usually back to Scarborough, so that's like the okay. one time I see the family home. Back again. to the hood. Back to the hood. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's nice. Nice, nice, nice. And your family's you're Vietnamese. Yes. But you were born here. Yes. Okay, but you're. Uh, yeah. Now I was I was um, so I I have a uh, immigrant background as well. So my parents are from East Africa. Right. And they came here actually. Before we do that, I have to say this. Uh, so I'm a dad. Nice. Um, and I have to congratulate. Whether I don't know if my son will ever listen to these, but just in case, right? He does. So he's in grade four. Yeah. Uh, he was in a cricket tournament all day. Yeah. Today, and uh-huh. I want to say congratulations to Cosmere. Their team won the championships. Yeah. So he told me that uh, they were. The, he believes they're called the Northeast Champions. Nice. So congratulations, Cosmere. Papa is uh, proud of you. Good your, job. Your awesome. dad's always right. Listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Liam. Um, but yeah, th- I'm, I'm very curious about people's different immigrant stories. Yeah. Um, and as I was reading uh, some stuff about you, it's, see, I was going to ask you this, but then uh, sort of my reading um, sort of answered it. But, but I'm very curious about your sort of perspective on how that influenced your upbringing and the various choices that you've made along the way? I think growing up in an immigrant household, I think a lot of people experience what I did was there is a level of expectation that you achieve the things and you seize the opportunities that weren't necessarily available to your parents. And so there's a lot of expectation to uh, get that big job, you know, a lawyer or a doctor. And yeah. I know it sounds cliche, but it's, I mean, so it's cliche because it's true, right? Yeah. I mean, my parents came over from the Vietnam War, and they risked their lives to come here with my two older brothers. And of course, uh, of course, you don't want to let them down. And, and you kind of grow up surrounded by all these stories, and, and, and you want to make them proud. And so part of the immigrant experience for me was chasing their dream you know their dream for me for you yeah, exactly and it wasn't until much later to in my undergraduate years at u of t that i kind of realized all right their dream is not necessarily mine and i i, I should find sort of my own path and i think as parents you can only sort of push your child to a certain direction until they kind of find their own path and then if they see how passionate you are about it then they will support you and that was the case with me when i found out that i wanted to do journalism mm-hmm now, was your your brothers are lawyers? My oldest brother. Your oldest brother. Yes. Okay. And was there were any of your parents lawyers, or was that sort of the you get a good profession? Well, my parents were in school to become lawyers uh, okay. back in Vietnam, but obviously uh, it was very tumultuous at that time in okay. terms of the political instability, the, yeah. the, the war, and and so that kind of derailed any plans of them becoming lawyers. So when they came here, immediately they realized that they could no longer pursue that dream only because it would take time. It would take money. And they had two young kids to 
to, to take care of. In, yeah. And then suddenly, surprise, <laughs> I came in and I'm like, hey, your savings, they're going towards me. Sorry, you got to budget more. Um, so, so, so yeah, I, it, 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 was, uh, it was definitely something, for sure. Wow. Yeah. What, what did your mom and dad end up doing when they came here? In terms um, of their work, my mom, my mom worked predominantly in nursing homes, so she worked like in the kitchen. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, which was really good because my mom is very sociable. She's very uh, kind, and I know coming from me, biased. She's my yeah. mom, but uh, I remember shadowing her at nursing homes, and she'd be very kind, and and she loved listening to people's stories. And I guess you could kind of chalk that up to why. I became so interested in becoming a journalist and, and becoming that person that listens to people and talks to people because I mirrored my mom, I think, a lot. And and so my mom worked in nursing homes and she was always friends with all the residents uh, who were there. And it's sweet because sometimes nursing homes are kind of sad, you know? A lot of sure. people sitting there and their their family does not visit them through some sort of circumstance, whether you know whether they've moved on or or they live someone else, and my mom's kind of became their friend, so so that was cool. My mom uh, worked at a nursing home, and then my dad uh, did more sort of the service industry at um, at U of T and Ryerson. So he did some custodial okay. kind of work. Cool. Um, what was it about? So you sort of pursued the law degree, or or sort. Of undergrad mm -hmm. um pursuing that what was it that was there one point where you there was a light bulb that went off you so you know what i need to get into storytelling or journalism what was it for you it's funny because i did journalism back uh when i was in high school i wrote for okay. the school paper nothing mind-blowing or <laughs> or you know award-winning by any means but i kind of did it as a hobby out of curiosity out of boredom and then i kind of buried that and then i did uh, criminology at U of T. So the first couple of years, I just focused on my studies. And the thing about creativity and the thing about passion is it always finds a way of seeping through. You know, you could kind of suppress it as much as you want. Yeah. But I found that I was gravitating towards activities that were journalistic in nature. So I uh, went towards the varsity, which is the student paper there. So I remember at reaching out to them. Yeah, at U of T. And that's how I kind of started doing the journalism. And then from there, I was like, okay, all right, I'm pretty good at this. Um, and, and I'm really passionate about this. I want to pursue this as a career. But I knew my parents were all about higher learning. They wanted me to do a degree after my undergraduate degree. And around that time, it was almost like fate. Ryerson had introduced their graduate program, their Master's of Journalism program. So I was like, done. You know, it's journalism, so, so it will make me happy. But it's also a master's degree, which my parents are all about higher learning. So then I think they'll deal with me not being a doctor or a lawyer as long as I have a master's degree. So then that's how it happened. And what was that conversation like with your with mom and dad? Uh, I don't think it was. Uh, or was it? A there was no conversation. Convers I don't think there was a conversation <laughs> at all. You know, I think like a lot of millennials. I mean, I'm not like a '90s baby. I was born in '87, but I think we're grouped into the same sort of millennial category. I think with a lot of millennials, you kind of just do it. And I was also the younger kid, so my parents were they were still strict, but they were lenient at the same time. So I think they just saw me do this. <laughs> and again. Um, being a lawyer, a doctor, that's something that's a visible visible proof that their sacrifices were worth it. So the closest thing I got to that was getting a front uh, page story in the varsity and my byline was on it. So when they saw it uh, at campus, they're like, okay, all right, we'll, uh, we'll let them have a go at this because they were, I think, they were obviously proud of me for, for getting it published. So I think from there on, the, 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 they were thinking, let's, let's let him do what he wants to do and see how it plays out. What was that story about? Uh, that one was uh, about um, an Iranian-Canadian professor at U of T who 
was in Iran and he was doing a lecture and then subsequently when he was trying to get back into Canada, uh, Iranian officials uh, stopped him and held him captive for I think just either a couple of months or, or just over a month as almost like a political prisoner and they accused them of leading a velvet revolution and I think it's probably because of of uh, you know what he was teaching at school and it took him a while to get back but finally he got back and I remember getting that story his name was uh, Ramin uh, Jahan Beglu okay and I, I believe he's still a professor the story there. sounds very familiar it, it was uh, at that time I think it was qu quite a big deal I mean he was an academic he was by no means uh, sort of a radical political activist he was just uh, a professor that went over there to teach and then subsequently was detained uh, for reasons unknown and he was kind of kept there for a while and eventually luckily he got to come back to Canada but that, that was definitely a, a fascinating story and that was my first story with the varsity I have no idea why they gave it to me because I just kind of rolled in and I'm like hey I want to do the story and there was like a spreadsheet I'm like I want that story that, that story sounds amazing and then it ended up being on the front page and uh, that was awesome that sounds like a, like a heavy story for a university student it does, but but it was a U of T professor, right? So it, it was sort of in our wheelhouse, but at the same time, uh, you, you know, he, he had come out of that dark tunnel. You, you know, okay. he had come back. Yeah, he was reunited with his family. So there was an optimistic side to this whole story. And so, yes, it was dark, but it was also hopeful, too. And it also ignited a lot of sort of academic debate about political freedoms and, and, and you know, our role as Canadians especially when we go to other countries and how vulnerable we can potentially be, mm -hmm. especially in, in politically unstable climates. And what, I'm, I'm curious about that feeling for you to see that story being published. Um, like, did it validate <clears throat> that you made the right decisions? I, I think it did, but at the time, you're not really that you know, uh, retrospective yet. Because that early in your career, you're just kind of doing it, and there is a thrill to it. I think... There is a sense of ego. I think anyone in journalism who says they don't have a sense of ego at all, it, it's, it's a lie. By no means am I walking around chest puffed up and going like, I'm the best, because I'm not. But having your name on, on the page, it's a physical representation of your hard work, of, of that moment that you shared with that person that you're talking to. Yeah. And now other people are hearing the story. So you get to be that storyteller. And I think that that's more of the high for me. It's less of seeing my name and more of the idea that people are discovering the story that I'm writing about and they're being enlightened, I hope, by reading it. Nice. Tell me about your singing career. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to sing now. Was that... Was that... <laughs> Was that in high school, university? When was that? That was in high school. Okay. Um, I wasn't good enough to uh, parlay that into a university singing <laughs> career, unfortunately. Yes, in, in high school, uh, I just started singing. I took piano as a kid. Uh, not really good. I still actually don't know how to count time, my piano teacher. Okay. I don't know how I got as far as I did, but I just like mimicked her. But I did some piano, and then choir came up, and I was all about overachieving and getting an extra credit. So, of course... Uh, 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 of course, I was like, I'm taking vocal. And then I just got pulled into choir, and, and, and that was great. Started a barbershop quartet. So. And what was, it has an interesting name. I can't remember. Yeah, we were called I the did... Temptations. The Temptations. <laughs> so anyone listening who's like, Temptations, that's a real band. No, Tempt Asians, because we were all Asian yeah. in our group, which we quickly realized was problematic because we had a revolving fourth member. That okay. member was baritone, and it was the most awful part because it was merely weird, non-sequential notes that made it all sound better, but they didn't sound good. So we had people constantly rotating through, and we're like, 
oh my gosh, we have to be discriminatory to keep our name. And then at the end, end of the day, we're like, we like the name too much. It doesn't matter. We, that fourth person doesn't even need to be doesn't Asian. To be we're Asian. all Asian. We're all human. <laughs> we're all part of the fam. So uh, yeah, that, that quartet kind of ended uh, after high school ended. And, and you said you're not going to sing. No, no, I'm not. Um, sometimes I bust it out, but uh, only in the shower. Yeah. Now, you was, you before we started recording, um, I you had said to me back at the bar, um, you were you were you were two fifty two forty two forty. And when was this? Was this in high school? It was in high school. Yeah. At the same time you're singing as well. Um, yeah, around the same time too. Uh, yeah, I, w- I was all, always heavy, but I never really had body. But you're not now. No, no, no. I'm one ninety now. Okay. Yeah. You, sorry, you were you were saying you never had body image. Uh... No, no. I think for some reason I was very lucky in 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 high school. The thing about choir is it was very much its own ecosystem, and I think with choir everyone was a bit of a misfit. So if you were in this sort of group, I mean, no one really picked on you necessarily. It wasn't like Glee or 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 like those high school um, movies where like oh the the nerdy music kids get picked on. But yeah, I was I was heavy when I was uh, growing up, and which is kind of crazy because I did swimming, I did. Taekwondo, that's about it. And uh, yeah, I was I was pretty heavy. And then after high school, I was just like, I'm just gonna hit the gym. And then boom, just like that. The good thing about high school metabolism, if you really yeah. hustle hard, you can lose it in like a month. So I, I lost remember it. those days. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I lost it in like two months. I was like, yes, nice, awesome, good for you, man. Thanks. Um, and, and I guess your media career started. What did it start? I, like, I guess it started at high school, writing for the paper, mm-hmm. writing for the varsity. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of parlayed into was it MTV Canada, sort of your first quote unquote. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of my first entry into yeah. uh, you could say broadcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah, I I've, my first sort of broadcasty internship was actually at a music video production company. Okay. Um, yeah, so they did music videos for uh, like artists like Masari and Sean Paul, and so I, I was the intern with that. But that internship was. Awful, not because of them, but because I was awful. <laughs> oh no! I just felt like I, it wasn't a perfect fit, and and uh, yeah. So we'll forget about that. But MTV. So that is nowhere on your LinkedIn or your website. No, <laughs> not at all, not at all. And it's funny because their uh, office. I'm not sure if anymore was like actually two doors down, uh, or three doors down. Not, I'm not referencing the band, but it's actually like three doors down. Um, <laughs> and I would actually walk like, like along from here. here? Yeah, yeah, from oh, no here. Way. Yeah, okay. yeah, at the corner of like King and Sherborne. So, uh, so I had to, uh, you know, during lunchtime, I would just escape and go around here. But anyways, <laughs> I, I digress. I'm, I'm rambling. Um, MTV, yes, that was my first internship, probably my longest unpaid internship. Looking back now, it, I'm not sure if it was legal for me to work unpaid like that, and it wasn't even part of my school credit for that long. But How long were you doing that for? I was doing it for close to a year. It okay. was like seven seven months. It was the back end of my fourth year at U of T. Okay. And I just really wanted to do something. My course load wasn't as big, so I uh, got an internship there, and the rest is history. I mean, I, it, a lot of it was menial. It's like one out of 25 people with like a bunch of people who had some of these aspirations to be on air, and I didn't. I just I was kind of curious about the whole experience. So yeah. everything from... from fetching coffee to fetching props or to being part like in the background of some skits to um to to i don't know going on shoots and helping out 
Okay, so really in the background. Yeah. Helping whoever needed help. Now, was there a contest you did to get that job? Or? Oh, yeah. Prior to that, there was a contest. Okay. There was this auction where I believe uh, you, you could bid on experience, and that money would go towards, um, I believe, um, AIDS relief. And so so, huh. I, did, so I did that. So a, I, I, it was like a couple hundred, like maybe like 200 or 300, and it was on eBay. And I remember telling my parents, like, uh, can I do this? Please, let me do this. And they actually supported me for it. They're like, okay. Uh, and it, it, it let me be an intern for the, for a day. But by no means did that get me in the door because after I did that one day as an intern and I did, I was on air for that, uh, two months later I applied for it, didn't get it, and then oh, I had no. to wait like a few more months and applied again and then finally got it. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Now was yeah. it there, um, I read something you did a a report or an expose of MTV versus, uh. <laughs> was that during your internship? That, um... No, it wasn't sort of during my internship. It was sort of I was there, but not really. Okay. At that moment, I was kind of waiting for um, my grad school acceptance letter to come through. I was on a wait list. Okay. And so I had a lot of dead time. So I was still kind of doing some MTV stuff, but also freelancing for iWeekly, um, uh, yeah, yeah. which was the, the, the alt-weekly. It became yeah, yeah. the grid, and, and now rest in peace is no more. And, uh, yeah, so, so, so I p- pitched a story about uh, – uh, about MTV versus Much Music and sort of the irony that MTV was promoting more Canadian artists than even Much Music at that time. And then, obviously, that p- was picked up in the Torontoist um, b- by the writer, and they were like, it's conflict of interest. And for me, at the time, it was just merely kind of highlighting. I wasn't taking sides. I mean, m- Much and MTV were the same company, right? I yeah. felt like I could kind of give a perspective, especially from the inside, mm-hmm. about what was happening and what the people that were working there were feeling about this. And, of course, it it caught fire, because as things do on the internet, and it, it, it I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, my career is it's over. It's before it even gets started. It's over. I got called up to... I got called up to the to, to the top boss's office, and then I was sent to two nine nine Queen, where Bell Media is. Told to talk to the head of marketing. I know it was scary, and I and did. You're just a kid that just finished school. Yeah, going into school. Y- yeah. You know, I, I was uh, so I met. Um, his name was Mark McGinnis. He was the senior vice president of Much and MTV at the time. They called me upstairs, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm scared." So I'm walking up, and and I'm expecting this sort of suit and tie, like very serious guy, and and I come in, and he's so chill. He's just he's got flowy hair he's got a beard and he was just like so that article you kind of got me in trouble for that because technically obviously when you're doing an article about something you have to go through the proper channels and you never did and i never did i kind of just went straight to like the host the producers and they didn't gave me the interview so at the end of the day they could have said no or redirected me but they didn't so i don't take the full blame for that <laughs> and then he was just like but you know what i'm impressed you got a story and you wrote something pretty compelling now here's the deal the head of uh, Bell Media Marketing, they're pretty pissed off at me because of what unfolded. And, you know, no pressure to you, but if you could do me a solid and just go to 299 and meet with him at his office and talk to him. And and he didn't say that I had to apologize, but he wanted me to talk to the guy. And I was, you know, naive. I'm like, okay. So I go down there, 299, and then I kind of expected the same MTV guy, sort of hip, chill, um, on my side, and it was just um, a, a, an older guy, suit and tie. He was very nice, very respectable, but I definitely, I was just like, oh, okay, I'm actually really in trouble. <laughs> is- so, so I, I remember he, he, the guy was just like, you, you know, there are protocols for for all these things, and it, it was more sort of not a, not quite a scolding, but a bit of a lesson of how you should navigate the media world. So I, I apologized, and then um, from there, I just kept my relationship with Mark. Like we would 
meet up for coffee every so often. And, oh, nice. and then that eventually led to MTV, me being on air when I was in between contracts uh, at the Toronto Star. I was like, hey, man, we've been meeting up so long. You talk about how you want to inject more journalism into MTV, much music. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in J school. I'm finishing the first year. I had the six weeks where I'm a free agent, want to do something. He's like, yeah. And that's how I got my first on-air official on-air gig as like a reporter and that was for MTV News Canada. Nice, nice. I want to get to that but I want yeah, to yeah. reverse a little bit. You mm -hmm. talked about writing for the Toronto Star. Yes. You've written for Toronto Star, The Grid slash I. Yeah. Uh, National Post? National Post, yeah. National, and who else? And the Global Mail. Glo <laughs> I know. Is there anyone left? No. No. Global was the only one to take me. No, I'm kidding. So, I'm curious. Um, with your experience, and, and, and of course, you know, you're not the oldest guy in the world, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having that background in terms of writing for mm -hmm. uh, legacy media newspapers, um, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts, and also graduating from, uh, from journalism school, mm -hmm. your thoughts in terms of the future of newspapers. What, what, what is it? Is, is it the Toronto Star's tablet? Um, is it Paul Godfrey's argument in terms of government needs to finance newspapers what, what are your thoughts are you allowed to tell us your thoughts actually oh yeah sure well, why not i don't know. I, I don't know i wasn't briefed so um I, yeah i can totally speak my thoughts on it i mean by no means do i have the answer i think everyone's looking for the answer right that's like the million dollar question how mm -hmm. do you save legacy media whether it doesn't need saving even exactly so but but that is how it's sort of framed whenever there's sort of discussions about traditional tv stations and traditional newspapers is there a simple solution? I don't think there is. I think at, at this time, a lot of companies are taking very bold steps. I think the Toronto Star definitely take, took a very bold step in terms of launching a tablet and investing that many resources towards that sort of storytelling. And the thing is, we are sort of in this weird phase right now where social media is evolving, technology is evolving, and our efforts to catch up, sometimes by the time we do catch up, it seems a bit late, it seems a bit dated. And I think... Um, that's sort of the challenge that media organizations are facing. But at the same time, media organizations are quickly learning that you can't just be loyal to one specific medium. Mm -hmm. you, you know, in J school, they, they used to ask you, what do you want to stream into, print, online, or TV? You had to pick one. Okay. And, and now the reality is you don't pick one. I mean, look at Global. Uh, the reporters that you see on, on the evening news, Global News at 5.30, they uh, are digital broadcast journalists. So they don't, just do the traditional um, pack, uh, story pack for TV, but they also do the online articles. Sometimes they'll do interactives. Um, Peter Kim, one of our reporters, does a lot of data journalism, so a lot of innovative sort of graphics on global news, and that's an interesting way to supplement storytelling. So I think what legacy media needs to do and what they are actually doing right now is integrating m multimedia, but in a more seamless way, not, mm -hmm. not in a simple click on this video tab for video it's integrated into the actual story that's interesting mm -hmm. um you're you i'm curious about your thoughts on what paul godfrey has been arguing recently uh remind me so he's, he he did a I don't, I don't know if it was an interview or he was uh in front of a, a comments committee or something mm -hmm. something to the effect of the government needs to invest or financially support mm -hmm. um newspapers right i was going to say the national post but really newspapers it's whenever it ends up being money, it's it, it's complicated, right? Because uh -huh. the government's already sort of <laughs> working, 
trying to finance everything else. I mean, we always talk about infrastructure in the city and how transit, mm-hmm. uh, the federal government should have, you know, a role in helping us build that because we're way behind than we should be, especially when you look at the population growth. But in terms of financing um, newspapers, I, I, I think it, it'd be, I think it would be good, I guess, in the sense that there would be a sense of a, a source of revenue. But at the same time, I kind of like newspapers being that sort of independent yeah. resource. You know, that's not necessarily accountable to the government or, or owing to the government. And journalism is still doing amazing things in terms of investigations. And I think a lot of that has to do with our ability to separate ourselves from the state, from the power. And I yeah. think that, that allows us to work as journalists. Um, granted, the CBC still d- does that, and they have um, funding as well from the government. But to, to kind of rely too much on funding from the government, I, I think could potentially um, just... Let me rephrase this. I, I just think as an independent body, I know uh, journalism companies and, and newspapers and, and TV, uh, you always hear about job cuts and about the lack of money. But I think at the end of the day, it's not as simple as just throwing money at the pro- problem. I think a lot of it is addressing consumer trends and how people are consuming media. So I don't think that if the government suddenly was just like, we're paying for everything, that that would be sort of a solution to the problem because yeah. you still need re- readership. You still need financial return, right? Is it in... Do you think to, to I guess, to uh, piggyback on your comment, do mm-hmm. you think the... Uh, a part of the solution, obviously there's probably not one silver hmm. bullet, right, is is it in the short snippets of information? Um, you know, people consume 140-character tweets. Mm-hmm. They consume an image on Instagram, uh, a 12-second uh, snap on Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it longer-form investigative pieces that take a lot of time? Mm-hmm. Uh, to research, right, um, and and then take a lot of whether it is um, a certain amount of words in in a newspaper column or an online column, mm-hmm. or it is a twenty to thirty minute uh, segment uh, uh, online or on television. I'm curious your thoughts on where you would like to see storytelling mm-hmm. in in media go. I think I would like to see it go more. I guess in terms of integrating all of those types of storytelling, the reality is, yes, a lot of people consume media in short spurts now. It's like they read a tweet and that's it. And you can't assume that they're actually going to click the article or tune in to the news at night. But I think um, the key is integrating it all. You know, there is still room for long-form journalism. You look at the New York Times, and they have so much cool interactive features that integrate well into their text. Uh, And I find... At Global specifically, we've done a lot of interactives online, and and we do a good job in terms of pushing it uh, on our actual live show, on our newscast, to the website. And then we also have a place for long-form features with 16 by 9. So I I think each media organization is doing what it needs to do in order to stay relevant, and that is... We have the social media accounts, so we're appealing to that demographic. We also have the straight-up newscast in the evening because a lot of people still watch that. And I'm not just talking about legacy people, people who are parents. Young people actually tell me that they were watching the newscast. So speaking to them... in, in that format, and then they watch that. Maybe they might see a little snippet or a little tease to an online uh, feature or an online interactive or even 16 by 9. Then they'll go, hmm, maybe I'll tune into that. And the reality with most media organizations, now you can watch a lot of stuff online as well. So people can, so true, yeah. can watch on there. So I think it, the key is to include everything. And you, you, you pick and choose what, what, what you want to promote the most. But I think a lot of news organizations are definitely... Um, 
I guess, taking the first step in terms of staying relevant, and that's doing everything and not quite not cu- quite forgetting that long form is still very important when it comes to journalism. Well said. Yeah. Um, let's get back to you talking about your first foray with MTV, New- with MTV News. MTV News Canada, MTV yes. News Canada. Yeah. Um, and this was sort of the first sort of news segments within what most people would consider music or entertainment yes. uh, driven uh, shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, or channels, I guess. Um, people, I th- at that time, people were familiar with Vice, but mostly sort of the millennial people reading online. And uh, I, I remember being very obsessed with uh, Vice and how they kind of did their extreme journalism on their YouTube videos. This was before they had a TV channel yeah. uh, out there. So I remember watching it and thinking, oh, this is cool. And then MTV kind of launched uh, their own version of Vice. It, w- it was called the Vice Guide to Everything. And that sort of ended. And I remember kind of talking to Mark at that time. And I said, you know, it's cool. You got your celebrity interviews with Katy Perry and Lady Gaga. And you have like video game and, and, and movie news. But m- maybe we sort of had this young demographic that clearly has a thirst for news uh, why don't we? Why don't we try something that's very similar to Vice? Something that's very eye level, uh, that's very journalistic, and just put it into the show. It doesn't have to be a big part of the show. Just, you know, one segment, two minutes max. Let's do it. And that really excited him. And at that point, that's how we started working together. And every week, I would have almost like a current affairs type of feature that would be broadcast on MTV News. Nice. And what, what were some of the, your, your features, some of your stories you were telling? Uh, well, the first one was Somali-Canadian youth who were getting radicalized into the extremist group uh, Al-Shabaab. So it was all about uh, sort of the racism that they faced and how vulnerable they were potentially to um, these radicalized groups who were reaching out to them through social media and, and kind of preying on those mm. uh, vulnerabilities that are inherent when you're facing systemic racism. And so I did a story on that and interviewed some people who had friends who joined Al-Shabaab, people who, who, who disappeared over there, and to get their feedback. And then also showed the story about how a lot of Somali Canadians, uh, young Canadians, were channeling um, their, their sort of angst and, and their sort of experiences into into rap and into other me- other modes of dealing with it other than um, something that is obviously very negative. So that was one of my stories. Another one was talking about the underground porn industry, what compelled young people, <laughs> legal people, um, young uh, young people over 18 to uh, seek an industry, uh, s- seek a career in that sort of industry. So getting that sort of perspective as to why. What were some of those reasons? I think a lot of them was Is it just, just as obvious as it pays well or... I, I think it, it's it's quick money okay. and also a sense of curiosity. Huh. Naturally, uh, s- some people are more apt to do something like that than others, but sure. But but that was sort of the the thing is they were just like, oh, you know, I, I need money. I enjoy <clears throat> uh, do, doing it in quotes, and, <laughs> and so uh, they, they they did it out of curiosity, and it was also uh, a, a way of saying how. Uh, there are a lot of um, porn producers out there who are very legitimate and, and they go through the proper channels in to- terms of uh, safety, in terms of health, in terms of um, making sure they're of age. And there's also the danger of scams where a lot of people out there say that they're these erotic filmmakers and then they take advantage of these young people and they don't necessarily pay them what, what they're meant to be paid. And mm-hmm. it's not like these people are able to go to the cops and say, like, hey, I did this. Um, help get my money back because sometimes there's more priorities yeah, to that. So that was another story. I'm curious about the, your story with the Somali Canadians. Was mm-hmm. there any fear on your end, whether it was certain people that you felt you needed to talk to that 
you know, that you wouldn't regularly talk to or certain neighbors you might have had to go to. I'm curious about, um, yeah, I'm curious about sort of your feelings in terms of getting the story mm-hmm. and the things that you had to do to get that story. I think my fear mostly was that the community would think that I was um, exploiting them. You know, a lot of times I think there is a lot of skepticism, especially when you're portrayed in a certain way in the media, um, that when you go to the neighborhood, you're just looking for that sizzle, you know, that sizzling soundbite. You're not really there to talk about the deeper issues. So that was where my fear was. My fear was that people would see me as the other in their community um, trying to work against what they were doing. And a lot of people... um, uh, they're, you know, they're working hard in terms of, of reaching out to the youth. So for me, that was sort of my fear. We went to Little Mogadishu. Um, Where is that? Uh, it's in Etobicoke. Okay. Um, yeah, so we went to uh, Little Mogadishu over there, and it's a very tight-knit community, lots of high-rises, but also um, crime has been an issue there in the past. And so there is a big skepticism in media. So I remember being there, and, and some people were heckling me out of the car uh, window. I wasn't sure what they were saying exactly, but I was actually meeting up uh, with, with a young gentleman who had fought with Al-Shabaab and then wow. and actually left. And he was talking about just sort of... His his worry oftentimes in terms of doing media because obviously when you're speaking out, you know there's people in the community that might not want you to talk about it because their perspective might be you're you're painting a specific picture of the community and that's not what we want. But for me, I just kind of had to keep telling myself that this is part of the narrative and this needs to be told and it needs to be told in a respectful way. So my fear was less for public safety and more sort of that I could do this story justice yeah. and that. Uh, you, you know that I could hopefully enlighten people as well as inspire people within the Som- Somali Canadian uh, community by showing young Somali Canadians making a difference. Wow, that's very very interesting. Yeah. What happens after MTV News for you? Uh, well, uh, I, I the goal was for me to come back to MTV News because uh, I had to okay. go because I had to go back to the Toronto Star to do uh, to wrap up a contract. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I I was tied up with them and originally I was gonna. What sort I, of pieces were you writing for the Star? Uh, well, at the time uh, before MTV, I was doing mostly pretty much general assignment everything. I was stuck okay. actually in a radio room, not <laughs> pretty much like smaller than this room actually, okay. and uh, I would listen to police scanners. So you would do shifts okay. either from eight to four, eight a.m. to four p.m., four p.m. to midnight, or midnight to eight a.m. And you just got to listen to the police scanners and. If there's any breaking news, you are the frontline person to write up that breaking news. During the daytime, you talk with reporters, you help chase additional sources. So you're pretty much that wow. cub reporter that, that, that does all the grunt work, but you still get a byline. So I did that, and then I did the MTV. Had to come back um, to wrap up my contract. That was more general assignment. So it could be everything from, from community parades, community events, to crimes, shootings, or maybe fires, um, to more features uh, uh, out there, and lighter features, like me learning how to ride a bike at 21 years old. So it was pretty much <laughs> as general as okay. you could get. It was everything and anything <laughs> that you... That, that they needed you to do, you could do it. So originally I was going to come back to MTV, but as things always change in uh, the TV industry, the, pe- the person I knew that really believed in me, they were gone at that point when I was coming back. So there wasn't really that, that, that person that I could kind of go back to and say, hey, remember that thing that you wanted me to do? Yeah. Um, so th- that didn't work out, but luckily Global did. Okay. And what did yeah. you start doing for Global? 
I started off as the social media guy. I'm, okay. Uh, yeah, I, it was funny because you're I, young enough. You know what Twitter and Facebook are. <laughs> yeah, d- <laughs> d- definitely. I, I remember, aside from you know uh, Twitter and mining social media in breaking news reports, I wasn't, I wasn't a social media savant. I wasn't uh, walking around with ten thousand followers and and verified status uh, by any means. But um, oddly enough, Global reached out to me and um, they said that they had seen my work at MTV. Awesome. Yeah, so my stories uh, uh, t- uh, at MTV News, and, and they really liked my vibe, my on-air presence. And I th- I wasn't that polished at that point because I um, at the time when I was doing the MTV stuff, it was, I think, just after my first year of, um, of grad school at uh, Ryerson for Journalism. But they, they liked it, and then they said, hey, we're starting up a new morning show. Uh, we want you to come in, and we want to talk to you about it. So I was thinking, okay, I don't have an MTV job. My contract had the stars wrapping up. Let's do this. I show up, met Chris Reyes, um, who uh, was the news anchor at that time, and and I interviewed with her. I interviewed uh, with our executive producer at that time, and I remember not knowing what I was really interviewing for. And okay. I remember Chris, who I'm so close with now, uh, she just to- uh, turned to me and she's like, so this is a social media job. I mean, what social media sites do you, do you look at? And I was like, um, Twitter? Uh, Mashable and she's like that's it because she was way more tapped in than I ever was she still is more tapped in than I ever was and she's like well this job requires you to be tapped in I was like I don't know you guys called me in to do an interview and I remember uh, leaving and I was like there's no way I'm gonna get this job I'm like I don't know what just happened I don't even know what the job is it was uh, it was like a social media reporter social media correspondent anyways eventually after a couple of a couple of interviews I, I ended up getting it after doing a screen test and then um, my role at The Morning Show has just kind of slowly but surely grown and morphed into something entirely different. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, did you, at journalism school or anywhere in between, do you take training on how to act on camera, how to interview? I'm really curious about that stuff. Yes, uh, they do. But like with most journalism schools, they really, they pretty much are by the books in terms of what uh, a, 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 a newscast voice should be or what a newscaster should be, which is great because at the end of the day, the medium might change and fluctuate between social media, but you still need the, the, the proper training in terms of knowing how to tell a story, how to legally navigate uh, a story, especially when it comes to crime, when it comes to allegations, when it comes to stories that are different from both sides. So that, that is the same. But when it comes to broadcast, they're very much teaching the sort, sort of old school broadcaster okay. the delivery, you know, yeah. suit and tie, very serious, enunciating like this. And I remember thinking in, in grad Say school. all your tea, so it's Toronto. T- Toronto. You, you know, all, all the diphthongs, it's like singing all over again. And I remember for me, I took that course in, 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 in journalism school and I was like, this is not for me. You know, I'm not that guy. I'm just very kind of laid back. I'm a bit more chill. That's why it worked out with MTV because I could do news with a bit more personality. I could, I, 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 I could be laid back. But yeah, journalism taught, taught you to be a different way. And I guess originally why I didn't entertain me, a, a job in tr- traditional broadcast media or a place like Global News is because I felt, oh, you know, there's no way that they would want someone like me. I'm kind of, I'm not blonde hair, blue eyed, because I was growing up in that immigrant bubble. Once again, this, mm. this was me as a kid. Me as a kid growing up, media was not the way that it is now. It's not as diverse as it is now. And you're now. not seeing other Asians on television. No, exactly. And, you know, there were at the time, but I, I didn't see it growing up. So I kind of almost built this, uh, this not sort of self-racism, self... Hmm. I didn't hate myself by any means. I was very proud of who I was, but I felt like no one would want me. And that's what I I 
convinced myself of that. And so in, in journalism, I was like, you know, broadcast, I don't think it's the medium for me. I don't look the part. I'm not, uh, you know, chiseled, jawed, I'm 240 pounds. There's no way. But print, you know, at the end of the day, print, people are just reading your words. They're not looking at how you look, how you are presenting yourself. So that's why I went the print route for a bit. But in terms of uh, journalism, yeah, they teach you a certain way, but I've kind of found my own way of doing my version of broadcast, and I'm still employed. So There you go. So when you started at, at Global as the social media guy, yeah. are you just are you are you sort of going back to your cub reporting days where you're you're doing a lot of that research and passing it on to other people, or are you do you have a quick spot saying hey you know such and such has happened here's what's happening on Twitter? Yeah, it it, uh, it depends honestly. It's three hours of live TV and a morning show, so you go pretty light when it comes to topics, lifestyle topics, and then you can go really heavy when there's breaking news. When there was the Boston uh, bombers, that, that, um, that when that incident was happening, it was unfolding during uh, the morning show. So what I was doing was wow. I was mining sort of tweets because uh, uh, tactical officers were all around Boston searching for the remaining suspect, and people were actually tweeting out photos and uh, of of cops in their neighborhood of of these tactical officers it was almost like a movie just in their neighborhood like oh my gosh like is the suspect in our neighborhood and people were reacting on social media so i had to sort of mine that social media and also ask the question too of of whether or not this is a good thing because when it comes to officers in the line of duty especially in a developing situation like that social media if you tweet out their whereabouts that could put their lives in danger so also integrating that into the conversation as well so I've used uh, social media like that. We do a newscast. If there's something developing like that, they would throw it to me, and I would say, hey, this is what people are saying on social media, and then throw it back to them. And then on the very light days, then I'll be like, here's a cat video. <laughs> yeah, here's a cat playing a keyboard. Yeah. So it pretty much ran the gamut. And my originally, when the show first launched, I just had two hits, and they were just uh, soliciting uh, comments. So you know, do, are you disappointed with the TTC being uh, two years uh, behind on, on this transit development sure. project? Stuff like that. Wow, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, are, I'm, I'm assuming that you're you're you are writing your own script. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I it, it, sometimes people watch TV and they think, man, there must be a big team behind that. But no, every single person on air has a role in in what they're saying to varying levels, of course. But w- when I did when I did my 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 hits, it would always be ad lib. You could say that working at the morning show on global is the best improv class in the world because wow. it makes, well, it makes you think on your feet super fast. I mean, if, if you went, if you hopped into a time traveling DeLorean, picked me up from high school and you're like, Hey, I'm Kareem. We're, we're going on girth radio now. Welcome. I, I, I would just kind of be like, Oh, yeah, um, so like uh, I would just kind of talk in circles. But being in TV, it kind of taught you to be succinct because A, you can't memorize a three-hour show. You can't be like, I'm going to memorize this line because when you memorize it, you're of course going to flub things. Yeah. And, and and two, you can't just keep rambling on because people are going to get bored or you're going to run out of time. So you have to be succinct. So that's one thing that, that I learned. But yeah, everything that I've done on the morning show is uh, written by me uh, other than sometimes we do entertainment headlines and of course someone else is writing that and I read that beforehand, but a lot of it is um, is us producing. My my co-host Carolyn McKenzie, she's our news anchor. She um, produces a lot of her own segments in terms of writing the voiceovers, uh, pulling the elements, um, talking with the guests before they actually come on the show days in advance to map out what we want the segment to be. It is very DIY. Wow. Yeah. So uh, you start off with 
mm. being the social media guy. Yeah. What's your sort of your next role as, as it moves forward? I think two months later, I wanted to kind of recapture what I had done in the summer at MTV, more um, more human interest type stories, okay. things that are captivating, a little bizarre at the same time. So I did a story about um, people in the sewers who... Sorry, uh, people in the sewers? In the sewers. Yeah, there are people in the sewers. No, not the Ninja Turtles. Sorry, I should rephrase that. Um, people who break into sewers to, to capture photos. They are almost okay. like, they're artists, they're people that, that are compelled by, by the underground, by the narrative of that. They love photography, they love art, and so they go in sewers, but obviously you're not allowed to go under there. So my story was following one specific, specific guy and talking to him about his fascination in going pretty much where no one wants to go to capture these uh, beautiful images. So I, so I did a story like that and I, they really liked it and within my first three months at Global uh, 16 by 9 saw my story and they're like we want to do our version of that with you in it so I did a story with 16 by 9 the exact same story but a, a different longer treatment version. of it yeah and a longer version of it and then from there on out people were like okay the social media is good because it kind of fills the day to day need for content but then they wanted me to do more packs and because I used to edit now what's a pack Oh, sorry. I keep talking to uh, TV no, that's term. Okay. A pack is a package story. Okay. So that that, that that's what when, when people say like it's a pack. It's it's a it, it's an edited down story, uh, usually around two to three minutes uh, on the newscast. So I started doing more of those stories that captured sort of my curiosity and and, and weird subcultures. And like, do you get to choose, or I guess you got to pitch these. How does that happen? Oh yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone is busy doing their own thing. So the onus is on you to be creative. The onus is on you to find the people to talk to the people and so for, for for me i would just mind social media i mean i did a story about cuddle parties and i so, saw that yeah yeah that was <laughs> bless their hearts but i could not do that i'm not a big hugger kind of person uh, doing the whole story I was like, oh gosh i'm hugging people but yeah but yeah that's what inspired me and what was that that was great i did pretty much a story like every week every two weeks and that's what every young journalist dreams of um the opportunity to do feature stories and having the time to do that and being on a consistent show like the morning show really allowed me to develop those skills and allowed me to still be hands-on in terms of um editing uh stories and chasing those kind of stories and you've also done some work with et canada yeah et canada that was fun. That's like a different beast because like everyone's so fancy. You're everyone. still in the same family. Yeah, yeah. We're still on the same chorus fam. Yeah. Um, I haven't been there for a while. The last time I was I did some stuff with them was I think maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, a couple of years ago. That was for ET Canada Live. They had a series of live shows that went okay. to air uh, at, uh, at 7.30. And so they brought me on almost like that social media correspondent. But um, I, w I was sort of more as a more like a contributing guest co-host um, on the show. So, so that was really fun. It was great. I got to dress up and, and, and kind of be uh, in an environment that I never thought I would be. Because we were talking um, earlier about growing up and not really seeing you yeah. reflected in um, media. Well, you would think like, I'm not fancy enough for ET Canada. You know, I've never seen a slightly pudgy, stocky uh, Asian guy on an entertainment show. So it was really cool that they gave me that chance, and uh, it was a good experience. Nice, nice. You've also had done. You've also interviewed like superstars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all around TIFF, I'm guessing. Or? Yeah, all, like mostly around TIFF. Yeah. Um, and then every so often when they're in town uh, doing the rounds, when it comes to the promotional junkets, I, I did that as well. Yeah. Um, did you, do you ever get starstruck? No, because, okay. Have you ever been on, uh, like, I guess just like a single date that kind of went nowhere. And then it was just ended after that one date. 
Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know, <laughs> were you starstruck by the person when you met them? No, but they're not like in movies or anything like that. No, know? but here, it, this is, this is going to make sense. I'm not trying to get your dating pass. Um, this, <laughs> this will make sense. Um, the thing about junkets is the celebrity sitting in a room and there's like dozens of reporters and journalists that are cycled in. So it's like speed dating. You know yeah. what I mean? It's yeah. very sterile. It's, it's not like meeting your hero. You're basically ushered in and they're there and you know that they've had eight other dates that are going the exact same way. And if you've ever been a serial dater uh, with with one date uh, <laughs> problems, then you know that it always starts the same. So tell me about yourself. What are you working on? Cool. And then it get, kind of gets kind of old. So I haven't been uh, super starstruck. And also at the end of the day, you only have four minutes in junkets. So okay. you, you don't have time to be starstruck. If you're starstruck, you're not going to get the material. And then you'll come back to work and you can't just be like, oh, hey, I nerded out. I didn't ask the question. So you, I, I, I would get starstruck after the fact. After. Yes. So you're not taking selfies with The Rock or... Oh, well, oh, okay. You found that photo. I, I, so, but I didn't, I, but, though, but there oh, is. Oh, there is a photo okay. of me and The Rock. That's so funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, it was me and The Rock when he was promoting Hercules. I took a photo afterwards of me, like, flexing with him. Because, I mean, yeah. when you're with The Rock, of course you're going to do that. He's, like, <laughs> a giant of a man. So uh, uh, you, you got to capture that. But, yeah, after the fact, sometimes you snap a few pics uh, just because it's, it's kind of funny. It captures a moment. And I'm very curious because it, it always seems that these actors and actresses they're fresh. It's like they're having the best time of their lives with mm-hmm. you. And you say you only have four minutes. Right. Um, and, and then a lot of the, like I, I saw some of your clips and mm-hmm. you're very loose with them. You're joking around a lot. Um, how do you decide to pick a certain persona mm. or ensure that you, at the, you know, you're obviously not listening to everyone else's interview, mm-hmm. but you're, you're asking them or you're talking about things that you're hope that you hope that no one else has talked to them about? Like, how do you prepare for that? I think it's sort of one of the fundamentals that you're prepared for. Um, I'm not sure with everyone, but for me specifically, having been in print before and having done journalism, is you got to read the room, right? It's almost like you're a comedian when you walk in. You kind of have to see... you have to do a little improv. You kind of have to introduce yourself, talk to them a little bit before the cameras start rolling to gauge whether or not they seem like they could be game. Because a lot of celebrities, which fair enough, um, they might be a bit grumpy, a bit tired, or they might be a bit more artistic. So they don't want to do the the kind of jokey kind of approach to things. So you just kind of read the room, you introduce yourself, and then I usually have in my brain a general outline of how I want the interview to go, but I also know there's a potential that I need to shift it. So it's almost like you're improving throughout the interview. And then if you warm them up two minutes in and you think, okay, I can do this kind of jokey bit at the end, then you save it for the end because if it bombs, then you just never air it. You just never air that <laughs> yeah. one. Which, um, who's the person that you interviewed that you, you left and you go, man, that was awesome, that person's great. Uh, Hugh Jackman, because okay. A, I'm a big um, comic book nerd, so interviewing Wolverine, why not? And he's also a singer. And he's also a singer. <laughs> he is like a triple threat, all, like mixed into one. He's my spirit animal. Um, yeah, so one, it was Hugh Jackman. Two, he was so nice, and he's known for being very, very nice. Okay. He, he pours this 100% uh, into an interview. And three, uh, we, uh, I interviewed him when he was in, in town for TIFF uh, for his movie Prisoners, which is a very dark movie about um, his kid being uh, kidnapped. Okay. And, um and, and, and we had the producer of the film on our show. And that's what I like about the morning show. We don't always just kind of go for the big names. We sometimes go for the authors. We go for the producers. We kind of want to give a different side of the story than, than uh, some other uh, 
um, shows might want to go. And he actually saw it. He he was just oh. like, yeah, he. I came in and he's like, I saw your interview with this producer of this film this morning. You did a fantastic job. I'm like, oh my God, you were watching me on TV. What is happening? And for him, he was just, he loves behind the scenes people because he knows how hard they work. And for him, he was like, it's so cool that that you 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 gave a platform for the people that oftentimes don't get the credit because sometimes the actors get a lot of yeah, it. So that instant, I was just like, man, we're, we're best friends. He nice. still hasn't texted me back no. or responded to my tweets, but it's okay. He's a busy guy. He's Wolverine. <laughs> um. What what was the one interview where you walked away and you said shit I should have done better I should have asked that shouldn't have asked that I should have asked this uh, I think like every interview is it everyone okay I think it's everyone because I'm a big perfectionist blame it on sort of my upbringing uh, 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 that my immigrant upbringing but it was all all about excellence it's all about excelling and you know even when the guest is super nice and they walk away saying man that was an amazing interview oftentimes I'll watch back myself and I, and I think oh I should have phrased that question differently I should have been more succinct here I rambled too much here or I didn't uh, I, I didn't a- ask a follow-up question to this so yeah there, there are a bunch of times uh, uh, you know sometimes more often than than others but you know it's just something you kind of have to deal with and you kind of have to take it as sort of this is my way of improving so you you watch and and you be critical yourself you don't bully yourself but you you think okay next time i can do this better and who's the who's the anti hugh jackman where you walked away and you go shit fuck what i I hate this guy now (laughs) um well maybe not that harsh but well, there was this celebrity. I will not say whether or not it was a guy or a girl because, you know, Hollywood is very powerful. <laughs> but this celebrity came into town, and luckily I did not have to interview this person. Uh, my co-host did. But they walked in with such a sense of entitlement and, and sort of almost checked out. A, and, and we were thinking, whoa, you're here to promote your product. We are here to give you You're a being platform. You're so vague. It's, I know. I have to. I have to. Or else, you know, I'll be hunted down by the agents of Hollywood. But, yeah, they were just so blasé. And, and I don't like that because at the end of the day, I get that you're doing so many interviews. But this specific celebrity just didn't register anyone. They weren't connecting. They were just disconnected. And I was just thinking, man, I'd, this is awful. I'm so glad I didn't have to do this interview. And those must be, like, the hardest. Where they're not no. giving you anything. There's no reaction. There's yeah. no... Yeah. I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the hardest interviews were probably the ones that I did at the Toronto Star. And, you know, it's one thing to deal with divas, but at the Toronto Star, you're doing a lot of serious stories and you're talking with families sometimes who have lost loved ones, right? Oh. And uh, and as a reporter, you almost have to emotionally disconnect. Those, okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair so enough. I'd say th- that's probably the most difficult interviews that I've ever had to do was when that, that subject is in front of me and they're crying because their loved one just died. And you almost have to hold it back, uh, your emotion, but you have to connect with them and, and you want to tell their story, but you don't want to get to the point where you feel like you're exploiting their grief. You want to be there in, uh, to comfort them, but also to offer them an outlet. So that that's, I, I'd say that is probably one of my more challenging um, aspects of the job. Obviously, I haven't done that in a while because um, that was way back in the star, which was like yeah. five years ago. What's your, your, your favorite story that you've ever done? Oh, favorite story. And it could I be something done. long form. It could be a quick hit. Um, I'd say, probably, I, I'd say probably long form. One of the stories I did at Global specifically um, was about sugar babies. Have you heard about this? Sugar I've heard babies. of sugar daddies. Yeah, sugar babies are the people that hook up with sugar daddies. Okay, fair. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I did a story about this uh, online dating site that connected young women with older men who had money. Is this a very recent story? 
Mm, it was in the last um, like year and a half. Okay, because I, I I've come across the story very very recently. Yeah, it, it's sort of something that hasn't gone away. Okay, and, yeah. and you could argue that especially with younger people nowadays and and the financial straits that we are under, whether from student loans or yeah, the lack yeah. of jobs out there, that they are turning to this avenue as a way of uh, making money. But that was probably my favorite story because I I, I met uh, a sugar baby and immediately people often have very sexist notions of these women who are um, taking part of this you know, you could say relationship transaction where they're meeting older men in exchange for money. They immediately think of them as sex workers, but that's yeah. not the case. You know, I, I, I met a young woman who was very intellectual, very smart, and oftentimes the sugar daddies she was meeting, she, she would meet with were were men who were a bit more awkward, you know? They were very accomplished, but they didn't have the same opportunities to develop romantically those skills. And so these women were giving them almost like uh, hmm. experience in terms of dating and gave them almost this cathartic uh release in terms of emotion i'm sure there's cathartic release um in other cases but the, the ones <laughs> I, I met with uh it, it was a lot of her relationships were platonic so that story was fascinating and then i met a man who was a sugar daddy yeah and who who would um who would meet up with with young w women and provide them with um you know whatever it is they wanted whether it was money or maybe clothes or or like a nice dinner interesting yeah, so that was probably the most fascinating. The most fascinating ones are the human interest stories because yeah. it's fascinating to see how the human spirit kind of changes based on the tough economic times. Yeah, it's, that's very, very interesting. Mm. Um, and now you're doing a lot of weather stuff as well from what I understand. Yeah, I'm like a chameleon. <laughs> you know, I'm just like morphing in whatever. It's just like, hey, guys, you need me to do this? Yeah, I'm doing weather. Uh, I started doing it back in August. Uh, it's been super fun. Uh, I'm doing a lot of live eyes uh, from the community as well um, to supplement my weather. So that's been great to be part of the community. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot lighter, obviously, than what I did in the past with the Toronto Star, with MTV, with my uh, investigative features. But journalism is all about evolving and adapting and for me for some reason I, when this opportunity opened up i was just like you know what i'm gonna do weather everyone loves talking about weather so let's do this and uh, or they hate to, if they hate weather they like weather it's, it's, too, it's a love hate very extreme yeah. right isn't it it's a love hate relationship but it's it's something people uh need to know every day and it's it, it definitely thrusted me in into a position that was way more prominent than I ever was as like a social media co correspondent, as that correspondent that just did junket. So, yeah. I mean, it was a no-brainer to give it a chance. That's nice. And are you doing anything else within the within the Global Shaw family? Uh, right now, uh, the only other thing I'm wor uh, um, working uh, on is the news at noon as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so the news at noon on Global. Uh, that's also with weather as well. But that's that's pretty much it. We're uh, I've just been focusing on the weather and... Um, and I also book segments as well, our local segments, along with Carolyn. So I'm producing a lot of those segments and chasing live eyes. So that's sort of my primary focus right now. Um, I haven't really, d you know, dabbled in anything else just yet. You know, I want to kind of focus on the show right now. And uh, that's pretty much it. So what time? So you do the morning show. And what time does that start at? It uh, starts at 6 a.m. And what? so what time do you have to actually get in the studio like what time are you walking in the doors uh yeah well it's funny i probably should be walking in earlier but sometimes i walk in the door at like 5 30 but no i am working in case my boss is listening and hair and, 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 and makeup is angry at you right? yeah right no well i mean i'm a guy there's not there's not a lot to work uh, work to work with there's not a lot of work needed um yeah i roll in at like 5 35 and before my boss says uh your time sheet says you're in at 5 a.m well i wake up at 4 30 a.m but i snooze until about 4 4 
45, shower, and then I'm basically on the couch doing my weatherboards in my underwear <laughs> remotely at five because I like to watch other uh, news channels out there just to see what's happening in the news um, for a meeting or to see um, what other people are saying about weather as well. So I'll update my boards uh, from my couch. And then when I'm done that, then I close up my laptop, get ready, and then get to work by 5.30, make up, 5.45, um, where it's sort of ideally in studio, and then 15 minutes later, boom, magic. What are boards? Uh, weather boards. Weather boards. Yes, yes. What are those? Um, they're those graphics that pop up. So you know, ah, like okay, okay. they're like those uh, emoji clouds and sun clouds. Ah. You know, I need to find a way of putting emojis on the weather boards because I feel like that would be amazing. Can you imagine that? Like surprise cat emoji for like a rainy day. I, I need to get on that. That's what I keep thinking. And have you ever made the mistake? So they're green screens behind you, right? No, not with oh. us, actually. For us, there there is no green screen. Is it an actual big, huge screen with the actual weather? Well, it's just like a monitor behind us. But then, okay. we, we, but then um, after I do the introductory, uh, hey, it's going to be sunny today, a mix of sun and cloud, here are your wind speeds, we go straight into like a full ah. uh, full board. So you, don't, okay. you only hear my voice. You don't see me walking around. I've actually never done that green screen thing. I don't think I would be as good as Anthony Farnell or any of our other uh, amazing weather people because it takes a lot of self-awareness to, to know where to point and yeah. know to, where to direct. And I am not a coordinated person whatsoever. So that might be a disaster. But obviously, if they said, you got to learn how to do this, then I would. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've met Anthony at a tour. Yeah. Um, on a tour. We, uh, Did saw... you meet his dog? No, we oh, never met man. his dog. <clears throat> so we went. So I'm a Cub Scout leader. Mm-hmm. So um, our, tr- our troop, our pack went... And um, I think we just we got there and we went into this huge control room yeah. to watch the end of the news and I think the weather. Yeah. And then Anthony for Farnell. Farnell? Yeah, Farnell, yeah. And a couple of other people were showing us the different we saw E. T. Canada studio, I think is there. Nice, yeah. Um, and a couple of other places we saw the massive green screen. Yeah. And now we know he is he has some sort of education within with the air quotes weather. Um he's a meteorologist. Meteorologist. Yeah. Now you yeah. don't have that background. No, so there, there there's there's difference. Um, when people watch TV, when someone is introduced as, let's say, just a straight up weather anchor or weather specialist, then they don't necessarily have that degree. Now, by no means does that mean that they're um, sort of not qualified to do that job. It just means that their breadth of knowledge is is slightly a bit less than, let's say, a meteorologist who looks at a lot more complicated data patterns and and, and maps and radars. Um, we are sort of taught. Um, to how to read radar and how to like uh, interpret data and stats and to look at multiple sources, but that's sort of the difference. Meteorology, uh, y- in order to be called a meteorologist, you need a meteorology degree. Okay, okay. And I do not have that. Yes, you're right. I'm curious, like, how, how do you then? I guess you're looking at these radars and figuring out what the weather will be. Yes, I yeah. think there's a lot of that. You're also looking um, at, at at other um, sources of data in order to determine uh, temperatures. Uh, Environment Canada is, of course, the official resource for uh, weather information in Canada. So there's a lot of looking at that, too. But, yeah, the radar satellite is actually quite fascinating to analyze, to see the weather patterns, to see the bands of showers making its way into the GTA. And you can actually very often pinpoint the exact time and area in which uh, a storm system will make its way into the GTA. So that really excites me because yeah. I, I'm just like, oh man, I feel like I'm, I'm Anthony for now. And I used to write weather stories at 
the Toronto Star. So on the slow days or on the very snowy days, weather stories always do amazing. And that's what I was told at the Toronto Star okay. in terms of clicks. People love weather. They want to know. They want to know yeah. what they need to wear. And so I remember anyone in the radio room, all the young cub reporters would always get the weather story. And, and everyone was just like, oh, man, you know, like we're doing a weather story again. Got to find a pun, you know, got to find something that alliterates. You know, what's another word you can say for snow? The white stuff, the white... Uh, not white powder. That's that's inappropriate. <laughs> um, but 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 you know, it, it was sort of uh, that that it's funny that it's kind of come full circle because I used to write weather stories as well. But now it's more fun because a you get to tell people in the morning, you get to track sort of weather systems as they change, and obviously in the morning um, when things change fast, uh, there's more to talk about. So that's always fun to kind of watch the radars and see how things fluctuate and looking at previous um, weather patterns from the past, uh, the hottest day, whether or not we're going to break records. I, I sound like a total nerd right now, but it's actually <laughs> super fun to uh, just look at all the numbers and to, to kind of see how weather can so quickly change. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So today, tomorrow, what could we expect? Tomorrow's going to be like a bit chilly. Really? Depending on when you're listening to this. Um, to, to, <laughs> to, 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 tomorrow's going to be a bit on the cooler side. I don't know, 15 degrees. Oh my goodness! I know, so well, well below seasonal. But the good thing is, now I never leave my house without uh, my umbrella because I always know what's going to happen. I used to be that awful person where I would just walk out without even checking the weather, and then I would get rained on. And now that has not been a problem. And sometimes my friends actually will text me and be like, "Oh, what should I wear?" I'm like, "Do this," and then they're like, "Yes." Watch the show first. I'm not yeah, kidding. yeah, exactly. No tune scoop. in. <laughs> tune in. Tune in, and then you'll find out. Get our viewership up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. What's next for uh, Liam Vu? I, I don't know. What whatever challenges me. Yeah. I think that's th- that's always been my career. I mean, from our conversation, you can tell that I've pretty much done very different things throughout my career, yeah. different uh, genres, different beats, and I like being challenged. And the reason why I went this weather route was because the position opened up and I felt like I had told the stories that I wanted to tell in terms of those human interest stories and this was the next challenge this was another mode of storytelling that I had yet to do and I felt like that opportunity uh, was a challenge for me to learn more about weather to to be that that person to tell people what the weather was going to be like and so that was my challenge at the time now it, it hasn't even been a year yet so I'm definitely riding this wave sure. and, 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 and I'm loving it but moving forward I think just at, at the end of the day anything that gives me a challenge anything that gives me an opportunity to grow as a broadcaster as a storyteller then obviously i would seize that opportunity is there a dream job no for you there used to be a dream job my dream job was actually writing for the toronto star and i did it for 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 a year and i got my front page story in the toronto star so i i did that dream and then my dream was at one time to be a much music vj and i feel like i kind of accomplished that by being on mtv and then i I grew up watching liza fromer on breakfast television and 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 i remember thinking man it'd be amazing to work with her and that dream's come true because i work with her now so i feel like i'm out of dreams so now it's just like now it's just like whatever's thrown at me then i'm like okay that that can be my next dream but i try not the thing about dreams is like it's great but you don't want to get caught up into it because if you get caught up in that future dream that future goal you're never really enjoying the present and and the first two years of the show i was really stressed out and 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 i would really kind of overthink a lot of things and looking back now my new perspective is to really enjoy the moment Uh, because because you never know how long it's going to last and how long you get the opportunity to be in people's living rooms so of course you just want to ride it out so no no future epic dreams of changing the world or or um, solving climate change, <laughs> although that would be amazing. I would love to solve climate change, but not, not part of my not part of my dream right now. Uh, <clears throat> you're a foodie. Uh, yeah. F- 
favorite restaurant in Toronto? You know, so many options. You, can, can, can it be like less of a restaurant and more of a booze place? Um, sure. Um, I'm in love with Bellwoods Brewery right now. I love a good hoppy beer. And so that's probably by far my most favorite place at the moment. Whenever I show up, I think they actually recognize me now. Not from the morning show, but from being like that guy in Cheers who's yeah. always there. I'm only there like once or twice a week. But, <laughs> but, but that's probably my favorite right now. Other than that, um, just straight up uh, Golden Turtle. Golden Turtle at um, on Ossington, which is conveniently across the street from um, Bellwoods Brewery. It's a Vietnamese joint, and obviously uh, I see my mom on, on the regular, but I don't get to eat her food yeah. as often as I would like, and it's sort of the next best thing because it's Vietnamese-owned, and it's mm, fantastic. Nice. Mm-hmm. And you've got a, a a problem of of having watched every single episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, Not even more than yeah. once, right? Like, Have you well, seen it? Have you seen Buffy? I don't think I've ever watched no, I feel like it's of its time. Like people who have not watched it and they try to watch it now, I think it just comes off as a cheesy, as a cheesy uh, show that's a metaphor for for you know puberty essentially and being a teenager. Yeah, I've watched every single episode. I actually own um, one of the the things that Buffy has in one of her seasons is an axe with a stake behind it. So I actually have a life size prop replica of Buffy's axe. Steak. So if there's a zombie apocalypse, you're, I'm, you're prepared. Yeah, it's not it's not a sharp axe, but I'm pretty sure I could sharpen it if you I figure that to. out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Buffy, <laughs> mm, amazing. Anything with strong women. I, I love like I love like Buffy, Alias, Supergirl. Uh, Alias, yeah, I remember that show. Oh yeah, with Jennifer Garner. Yeah, loved it. Loved it. That was a really good show. I know. I love action. I love yeah. action with female leads because I feel like they're always more compelling. <laughs> Do you have a favorite TV show now that you're not on? Ooh, favorite T-shirt. Well, I mean, like, everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, that show. Uh, Game of Thrones, I'm watching excessively. I love Veep because looking at okay. Veep with um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, because uh, I'm not sure if you're following um, the American elections right now, but a lot of times it's so outrageous, especially with Donald Trump. But yeah. equally outrageous, too, are, are some of the more, um, you know, even... E- e- even-tempered uh, candidates. You could say even Hillary Clinton. You know, I was watching this video of Hillary Clinton trying bubble tea for the first time, and it was just this two minutes of her drinking bubble tea, which, in case you don't know, is an Asian tea. There's milk in it, and there's these little tapioca balls, which yeah. are the bubbles. And she would, like, drink it. She's like, she would be chewing it. She's like, mm, that's, uh, that's strange. That's great. And it was just so mundane. <laughs> and the thing with Veep, it's that kind of comedy. It's like the awkward, silent comedy. So I love that comedy specifically. So probably Veep, Game of Thrones, and Supergirl because I'm a big nerd. And uh, That's still on? Yeah, yeah. They just oh, wrapped wow. up their first season on... Oh, first uh, season. Yeah, first season on Global and I believe it's moving to Showtime in the fall. So still within the Coors family. Nice. Thank you so much for coming in. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't talk your ear off. No, no. That was fantastic. <laughs>